morning we'll be looking at Nehemiah chapter 10 together. Nehemiah chapter 10. When a group of people are genuinely concerned with hearing from God and obeying God, they respond with glad submission. And the first step to restoration with God is submission to God's clear revelation. That is what we've seen in chapter 7 to 9. In chapter 7, the people, remember, asked Ezra, please, can you read to us from the Scriptures? And so he read and explained the books of Moses to them for six hours from, from the time of dawn all the way till midday. And their immediate response was, wow, we don't match up with that. And it was contrition and sorrow. But the immediate response that the Scriptures were calling for actually at that time was one of joy because in a few days' time, they were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was supposed to be a time of celebration. It was a time when they would remember how God had uh, provided for their fathers in the wilderness. Well, when that seven-day celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, finished, they had the Scriptures read again and six hours again for one quarter of the day, as the text says. And this time, it was appropriate to follow through on their contrition and sorrow, that is, with confession and repentance, which is what we saw in chapter 9. In chapter 9, there was this prayer of confession that Nehemiah prayed on behalf of all the people. He speaks on behalf of them. And he recounts the repeated cycle, remember, of Israel. It was they would sin, the people would sin, and then... God would allow some oppression to come to wake them up and then they would cry out to God for help and then God would bring a deliverer. This was happening over and over again, obviously in the book of Judges, but also in the books of the Kings and Samuel and so on. And the the reason that Nehemiah brings it up is because he wants to remind the people uh, that they brought about their own, the consequences for their own sin. The trouble that they were then facing that they were now facing was because of their own sin. And yet, God still had been faithful. Listen to chapter 9, verse 33, which is a good summary of Nehemiah's entire prayer. Chapter 9, verse 33, it says, However, you are just, speaking of God, you, you God, are just in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. That's a good summary of really what Nehemiah saw with regard to his own people and himself. And so, the text tells us here in, in chapter seven, uh, chapters 8 and 9 that, that for six hours they heard from God and then six hours they confessed their sins before God and worshipped Him. Well, at the end of chapter, chapter 9, they make an agreement to God. So, it's not just, God, we confess our sins to You, but now, the last verse of uh, chapter 9 is, We're going to make an agreement. We're going to reestablish or recommit ourselves to the covenant that we've made. That's what chapter 10 is going to be about. So actually, let's start with the last verse in chapter 9 just to get the context, and then we'll read all of chapter 10. So chapter 9, verse 38. This is the Word of God. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing... And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now on the sealed documents were the names of Nehemiah, the governor, 
the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Saraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Melchijah, and then let's skip down to verse 8. Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these were the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, and then we'll skip down to verse 28. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinances and His statutes, and that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our fathers' households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, and the oil to the priests and to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes in the rural towns. The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers, and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. I think the point of this passage being here is that believers who are concerned with hearing from God and obeying God will respond with glad submission. So when we are in a position to hear from God and to obey God, then when God speaks, we gladly submit to Him. The first thing that we see in verses 1-27 through is that serious believers gladly submit themselves to God. Serious believers gladly submit themselves to God. Here in verses 1-27, through we have a long list of people who sign their names to the agreement that we read about in chapter 9, verse 38. And they sign this with a seal. They're going to put it on a sealed document. Somehow each person had a seal 
they would say it was kind of like their signature, their stamp of approval to what was being written in the document or, or what had been written. And the people who are signing are representative of not only themselves, but also their entire family or the group that they represent. Showing that all of Israel really is included in the signing of this document. Not that every single signature was collected or every single seal was included, but that all the people that signed were representative for all the other people. And the point is that all of Israel was ready to obey God with all of their hearts. So don't look at these names here and think, well, just, it's just the leaders who signed to this and agreed to all these commitments. The people, they, just, they didn't know what they were agreeing to. Notice verse 28. Look at, after you list all these leaders' names, the, the governors, the priests, the Levites, and then you get to verse 28, notice the first part of the verse. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters. And verse 29 says, they are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles. So all these other people are actually signing it or putting their seal on the document. All the rest of Israel who had separated themselves were joining in on this act. So in addition to the leaders and priests that are listed there for you in verses 2 through 27, it's also the rest of the people who have agreed to do these various commitments. This, these commitments, I think, also spanned the races. That is, anyone who was a non-Jew, that was not an ethnic Jew, could also agree to these. And that's why the end of verse 28 says, um, uh, the middle of verse says, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. That's probably speaking of some kind of an ethnic uh, non-Jew, someone who's agreeing to come in to take on uh, religious Judaism. So the point is that the, the Jews were not ethnic elitists in that they only allowed Jews to worship their God. They would invite anyone to, who wanted to uh, betray or turn their backs on the false gods, the pagan gods, and turn to the one true and living God. They would welcome them into the covenant community. The identity of the signers, uh, again, I, I think these are primarily the leaders of the, the people of Israel. In verses 1-8, through eight, you have the chief leaders and priests, starting out with Nehemiah and Zedekiah, who are the civil leaders. And then in verses 9-13, to 13, you have the Levites. These were, again, responsible for the, uh, the temple services, whether it be the priests or, or just uh, taking care of the wood or whatever is necessary. And then verses 14-27 to 27 are the family leaders. So, the first part of this chapter is, is uh, we see that serious believers gladly submit themselves to God. In verses 28 through 39, we see serious believers gladly submit themselves to God in holiness and worship. Serious believers gladly submit themselves to God in holiness and worship. So we could ask, how have they submitted themselves to God? Yes, we've seen they, they've sealed the document, they've signed it. But how have they done it? In what ways? And that's what verses 28 and 39 answer. They've done it in holiness and in worship. So first, we need to see that serious believers gladly submit themselves to God's Word in verses 28 and 29. They gladly submit themselves to God's Word. Notice verse 29. All these people, that's the rest of the people, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinance 
and His statutes. So there's the answer. How are they agreeing or what are they agreeing to? They're agreeing to obey God's law. And so we could ask the question, what does glad submission look like? How do we know what God wants us to do? How can we be sure that that we are doing God's will? Have you ever thought of those questions for yourself? How can we know what God wants? Well, Nehemiah and the people of Israel know what God wants because they simply look at His Word, don't they? Verse 29 tells us they have looked, they have observed all that God has commanded. They look at the the Word of God and then they, they look at their current life practices and see how they line up. Do they match? And where they don't match, that's where they need to fall in line with God's will. God's will is revealed through God's Word. You don't have to wait for for some still small voice to come to you and tell you what God wants you to do. You don't have to wait for God to write in the clouds or for some other person to come up to you and tell you what God wants you to do. You know what God wants you to do because you can study it from you can learn from what what God says in his word. The clearest the clearest expression of God's word is the Bible. It is him speaking to us, preserving for us what he wants. This, uh, this book that, that really has spanned two-thirds of all of the time since, since the time of creation. I mean, this, this book spans that amount of time from creation all the way till the, um, the time of Jesus Christ. And so it, it is a book that transcends time because it's the Word of God. Notice the references to God's Word here in verse 28. They separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God. Verse 29, taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and then later and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God. So that's all talking about these people are... The way that they're submitting themselves to God is by submitting themselves to God's Word. So we could say it this way. If someone says... I want to do God's will, or I am doing God's will, and yet they're far from what God has told them to do in the Word, then they're either lying or deceived, right? We cannot say that we are doing God's will if we're not doing what God's Word has told us. God's will is most clearly seen in His Word. Now notice the seriousness of the commitment in verse 29. It says that they have taken on, in the middle of the verse, they have taken on themselves a curse and an oath. A curse and an oath. What does it mean that they've taken on themselves a curse? This is talking about profanity or something like that. No. In the Old Testament, the curse was, was basically uh, the penalty that a person would take on themselves when they had agreed to a covenant. That is, this is the penalty that should happen to me if I don't follow through on my end of the covenant. And the way that that was portrayed is through... Uh, most most clearly seen in the suzer- the suzerainty and vassal treaties, the agreements that they would have between a suzerain, a king, and a a commoner or vassal, or a, a higher power, uh, higher nation and a lower nation. And what they would do is is whoever would enter into the agreement is they would cut animals and put them on either side. Uh, they would basically put some space between the two cut animals. And then they would walk through the middle of those animals, both the suzerain and the vassal would walk through, and say, effectively with their actions, that if I don't follow through on this covenant that I've made with you, 
then let what happened to those animals happen to me. And that's what they would do in the ancient Near East. God did this with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. However, he only did, did a one-sided agreement. That is, it was a unilateral agreement that it wasn't anything that Abraham had to do in order for God to follow through on his promise. He was basically saying, though, as the glory cloud goes through the middle of these cut animals, that if, if I don't follow through Abraham on my promise to make of you a great nation, then let what happened to those animals happen to me. God was saying it will happen. That's the point. And this is what they're saying about themselves effectively in verse 29. Let a curse and an oath fall on me. We're taking upon ourselves a curse and an oath. The penalty for us not following through on this covenant to you, God, we expect a penalty to come. Don't think that doing God's will means going to a specific place or taking a certain job necessarily. You know, we're, we're constantly looking for these little tiny things that we see as such a big deal and it's going to affect the whole course of our lives. And if we don't know God's will in that specific uh, case, then we can't, we're going to mess our whole lives up and all this. But, but do you realize that for Israel, they recognized that the will of God was simply submitting themselves to the Word of God where it was clear. And, and the Word of God wasn't clear on all those specific types of things like who they were supposed to marry or which college they were supposed to go to. Instead, it was about simply following what God desired. And what's God's primary desire for them? What's God's primary desire for us? Not for us to get all those little things right, which we see as big things, but actually to be holy. That's God's primary will for us. To line our lives up with what the Bible says. So let me ask you, when you see a clear command of God in Scripture, you recognize that God is saying, this is the the clear direction that I want you to go. I want you to remove that sin from your life. Or I want you to start obeying me by reaching out to these people within your church or reaching out to these unbelievers. How do you respond when you see God's clear direction for your life? How do you respond? Are you quick to make a change? Are you quick to go for God, to God for help? God, I know I need to change, so please help me. I'm, I'm going to start taking steps in that direction. Or do you make a temporary change and then forget about it? Yes, God, I know I need to do that, and so I'm going to do it. And you start down the road and then give up. Or when you see God's clear direction, do you resist change by justifying your sin? You know, God wouldn't mind. God's a God of grace. We just got finished singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. So certainly God's grace is good enough for me. And He won't mind if I sin a little bit longer. If I justify this just a little bit more, He'll surely be there when I'm ready. Well, if you're going to be serious about following God, then you need to be hearing from God regularly and responding to Him in glad submission continually. So, Serious believers gladly submit themselves first to God's Word. And that's expressed in two ways. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter. Serious believers gladly submit themselves to God's Word. And that's expressed first in a specific commitment to be holy. In a specific commitment to holiness. Verses 30 and 31. What follows here in verses 30 through 39 is a collection of Mosaic laws that are written out and given specific application for the people of Israel. So they go back, read, remember they've been reading on several occasions, six hours at a time, 
from the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And what follows here in, in Deuteronomy or in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 30 through 39, is here's the expression of that law. Now that we've read the Old Testament, now that we've read the, the first five books of the Old Testament, here's what we think it means for our actual lives. So what you're going to find here is not brand new material. They're not coming up with brand new ideas. Here's, a, here's an innovative way to really please God. No, let's go back to what we know God wants. You don't have to be innovative. Let's find out what He wants in His Word and then do it. It reminds me of the story of David in 1 Chronicles chapters 13-15. through 15. David has a good goal in mind. He's a good man. He wants to get the Ark of the Covenant out of the Philistine ter- territory and back to Jerusalem. And so he takes the cart that it's on and puts a horse, uh, ties some animals to it and, and starts heading back to Jerusalem. And he has several men around the cart making sure that the, the Ark of the Covenant is not damaged or destroyed in any way. And as the, the cart on which the Ark is riding begins to rock, Uzzah reaches, reaches out to steady the Ark of the Covenant. And when he touched it, God killed him right on the spot. And you know David's response to all this? He was mad. He was ticked. How could God do something like this? In fact, the text of Scripture in First Chronicles says that he was fearful of God. What could we possibly do? I've got a good goal in mind, God. And now you're going to kill one of my men for actually doing something that was good? He was perplexed as to what he should do. But then after he settled down, he went back to the Scriptures, according to First Chronicles 15, and find out how his actions were not lined up with the Scriptures. And do you know what he found? He discovered that they were transporting the ark the wrong way. No one was supposed to be transporting the ark on a cart. It was supposed to be transported how? With poles, right? They were supposed to be carried. And, of course, the rest of the story is a good one, that they all go in celebration carrying these, this, um, this ark back into Jerusalem. And there's a great celebration. David's dancing because he's so joyful about bringing this, um, this, this uh, piece back to the Jerusalem temple or the Jerusalem tabernacle. And so what we learn from David and from Israel here during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the life of a believer is less about great innovation and more about careful submission. So in other words, we don't have to, as Christians, reinvent the wheel. We don't have to go back and say, okay, we've got to come up with some brand new ways based on the society in which we live and the way that people act and think and, 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 and their likes and dislikes. Let's create a new kind of worship. Let's create something that will really make people happy or Let's create some act of obedience that God will really like. It's not about innovation, friends. It's about careful submission. What does God want? Now, let me submit myself to it. And here are a few things that they recognized were not being done well. This is what we're going to see in the rest of the text. They needed to have a careful submission first to holiness. Verse 30, with regard to separation from foreigners. Here, they recognized that that they have not been properly separating themselves from foreigners. Do you remember 
Uh, that's what the people discovered at the end of Ezra, Ezra chapters 9 and 10, that they had not separated from foreign women. Instead, they married them. And the problem was not, remember as we studied through that, not that they were of different ethnicity. It was that they were of a different belief system, that they denied the true and living God and that God knew the hearts of His own people, that if they were uh, yoked effectively in marriage to a pagan, then they were going to turn away from God. They were going to turn to their sins. That's actually what happened with Solomon. Now, he didn't turn completely away from God, but he, he did live in sin and even made an altar to Molech at the end of his life. So first, they recognized that they need to, to commit themselves to God with regard to separation from foreigners. And then next, they needed to commit themselves to God with regard to Sabbath observance in verse 31. Verse 31, As for the peoples of the lands who bring wares or any grain of the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. Now, there's two parts of the Sabbath, Sabbath observance. Excuse me, is First, the, no commerce on the Sabbath day or any holy day, any day that was set apart for celebration of some kind. And then the second part is at the end of verse 31, no violation of the Sabbath year. See that the... We will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. First, no commerce on the Sabbath day. First part of verse 31. Israel recognized that one of the reasons that God allowed the Jews to be overtaken in the first place was because they failed on this very act. They were not observing the Sabbath as God had commanded them. It was clear... It was one of the Ten Commandments, that clear. Listen to Lamentations 2, 5, and 6. This is Jeremiah speaking. He says, The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and moaning. And He has violently treated His tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed His appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion, and he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. Jeremiah recognizes, listen, do you know why all this trouble and tragedy has come on the city of Jerusalem and on the temple itself? It's because you, people of Israel, have forgotten about the Sabbath. Instead of making it a day of rest and worship, you've turned it into a day of commerce. That's why they say in verse 31, you know, if other people bring in grain and wares or whatever the case, we're not going to buy from them. We're not going to do any business with them on the Sabbath day. So now here, Nehemiah speaks on, on the other side of the temple being restored. The walls have been rebuilt, but they're in a much different place than they were before when David had conquered much of the land. see, if the entire nation were made up, that is, all of Israel, not just Jerusalem, but all of Israel were made up of believing Jews, then you know, conducting commerce on the Sabbath would not be a problem. It wouldn't be a temptation for them. But you know where the Jews found themselves? In the midst of a, a different people group. There were Jews there in Jerusalem, but outside of there, you had Ammonites, Amalekites, and all sorts of different people, Ashdodites, and and uh, they're wanting to do business with the Jews. And so Nehemiah is saying, listen, here, right up front, now that we've got it restored, let's make a commitment. And all these people are signing it, putting it in writing. We're not going to uh, ignore God's 
command for us to rest and to worship on the Sabbath. In addition to no commerce on the Sabbath day, there would, they also agreed that there would be no violation of the Sabbath year, the second part of verse 31. We will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is the idea of the fallow ground, the Old Testament principle that God gave to the Jews in order that they should trust Him. Listen, on the seventh year, I don't think it did anything magical to the ground itself, but, but on the seventh year, uh, you need to trust Me. Don't Leave that ground fallow because I'm going to provide for you. I'll give you enough in the sixth year that you'll have enough, but, but you need to trust Me. And then also, no debt collection on the Sabbath year at the end of verse 31. On the seventh year, there was no debt collection. So if you had a lender or, or you, you had a, a borrower that had borrowed some money from you, you were supposed to allow them to not have to make any payments during that seventh year. Don't you wish your mortgage company was still under the Mosaic Law? Serious believers gladly submit themselves to God's Word, and that's expressed first in specific commitments to holiness, and then second in commitments, specific commitments to worship, verses 32 to 39. Here, in these verses, in every single one of these verses, verses 32 to 39, we have the phrase, the house of our God. So I'm not going to go through each verse and show you, but, but in each verse it says the house of our God. The most notable one is at the end of verse 39. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. So, before it's talking about specific commitments to holiness with regard to the Sabbath and how they were going, to, um, how they were going to, to treat one another, how they were going to separate themselves from foreigners. Here, it's talking about how they're going to treat the temple or the house of their God. They recognized that doing God's will by submitting to His Word meant that they needed to be faithful in giving to God's temple, providing for God's temple. And we see three kinds of giving here in the text. First, financial giving in verses 32 and 33. There it says in verse 32 that they would give a third of a shekel. It was kind of like a, a tax, um, a temple tax that was given uh, or required of each person that one time a year a Jew would pay one third of a shekel in order to help pay for the services. Look at the end of verse 32. For the service of the house of our God. If proper worship in the temple is going to happen, then it's not something that the leaders are going to be able to provide for on their own. Each of the individuals need to do that. And this tax is going to be used to help pay for supplies according to verse 33. So the first kind of giving is financial giving. The second kind of giving in order to help in their worship was material giving. Verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests. So, recognizing that there's all sorts of sacrifices that have to be going on. There's a continual burnt offering, so that, that means the fire never goes out. And, and then there's all these other sacrifices that are constantly being offered. So there would be a, a need for wood to be supplied to the altar. And the point of this is that, that if you want to continue having fellowship with God, you need to supply the wood that's necessary for that. And they saw their responsibility was based on, notice, the law of their God. Look at the end of verse 34. As it is written in the law. So we had seen in the Old Testament that we've read on many occasions that we are supposed to help provide for the temple, so we're going to do it. Again, they're not making things up here. They're, they're tying it to what God has already clearly revealed to them in His Word. So financial giving, material giving, and then verses 35 to 39, priority giving. Priority giving. 
The content of these priority gifts are given in verses 35 to 37 that they're supposed to give the first crops from their field, verse 35. They're supposed to give their firstborn, verse 36. Notice, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons. What does this mean? I think it's not that they give them up for service, that here you go, we're we're signing you over to the temple, you're going to be used for the temple for the rest of your life. Now, that did happen with Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 where his parents did that, or his mother did that. But here, it's more like a public dedication. That would not be improper, by the way, to actually give your son in that way. But here, what, what Nehemiah and the people are agreeing to is saying, listen, we're going to dedicate our children to God. Now, it wasn't that God only owned the firstborn son and He didn't own the second and thirdborn and so on. But the firstborn was set apart to God as holy to show that, hey, the best of what I have, my firstborn son, the best of what I have is dedicated to you. That means all that I have is dedicated to you. And that's kind of the point. So give the firstborn of your son. Notice the second part of verse 36, the firstborn of your cattle. So they're animals. They were to be given for sacrifice. They were not supposed to keep them for themselves or to sell them or whatever purpose they had other than to give them as a sacrifice. And the point is that God expects of us, like in Malachi, to give the best of what we have, not the leftovers. He doesn't expect us, you know, well, if I have a little bit left over, I'd be happy to give to you. God's saying, no, give me the best of what you have because I deserve the best. And that's the way that our God is. Verse 37, a lump of dough that was given to the priest in order for them to uh, have bread for the showbread and also for eating themselves. The end of verse 37, the first of other materials. The use of these priority gifts would be used for the service of the temple. All these gifts would be used to take care of the needs of the temple. That's why verse 39 reads at the end, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. We're going to use all these things Not just so that, hey, the Levites can get rich off of us. No, they're going to use them for the service of us so that we can remain in fellowship with God. So let me leave you with two principles here in closing. Number one, genuine faith and repentance leads to glad submission. Genuine faith and repentance leads to glad submission. What a contrast we have here in this agreement in Nehemiah chapter 10 from Haggai chapter 1. Now, what you need to know is that Haggai prophesies several decades before the events of Nehemiah chapter 10. And there he speaks on behalf of God to rebuke the people about living in their paneled houses while the temple of God was being left unfinished. It was still in ruins. You you know, you make your own house all nice and, and the temple still left in ruins. You see, the difference is that back then, several decades earlier, during the time of Ezra, between Ezra and Nehemiah really, or, or even before Ezra, the difference is that before, the people were only concerned about themselves and making themselves comfortable. But now, here in the time of Nehemiah, they're in a position where they have been awakened by the truth of God's Word as they've heard it read and preached. And not only are they ready to obey it, but they're actually willing to obligate themselves to it in writing. Genuine faith and repentance leads to glad submission. And so they're happy to renew the covenant that they had made to God by showing Him that they are serious about doing His will. Number two, 
We must submit ourselves to God in holiness and worship. So, this is not a really difficult application today. I think the point of the text is that that um, we, as believers, ought to be concerned with hearing from God and obeying God and responding in glad submission to God. And here's how we need to submit to Him. We must submit in holiness and worship. Serious believers do this. They respond to God with glad submission. And so the application for us is that we should respond to God with glad submission in holiness and worship. And so that means that we must take the principles that we know and apply them to our current situation. What principles have you heard and you know about God? Then apply those to your, your current situation, to your life, and do it wholeheartedly. You see, God is not asking you right now to apply something to your life that you don't know about. There are all sorts of sins that we commit, that, that we do ignorantly, that is, that we don't really know we're sinning against God. God brings those to light over time. And praise God that He does. But don't start there with the unknown sins. Ask God to reveal those to you. But for now, start with what you already know. Start with what you know that He wants and line yourself up with the Word in that way. And then, talk to God and commit yourself to respond in obedience every time you see where your life is not square with what the Word of God says. Now, this is a big commitment but it's the very least that we can do for all that God has done for us, isn't it? This is Israel here saying, we're making a big commitment to say we're not going to do any commerce on on the Sabbath. We're not going to to charge any any rent on the seventh year. We're going to place ourselves under obligation to give to the temple work. This is a big commitment, but they were willing to do it because they, they wanted to submit themselves to what they had seen in God's Word. And if you are serious about following God, about obeying God, then you will be willing to make a commitment in that way as well. That's the very least that we can do. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12.1. He says, Based on the mercies of God that you have received, the ones that God has covered up with the blood of Jesus, the very least that you can do in response to those mercies is to offer up your body, your entire life, in service to Him. Now, that's my paraphrase, but but you know the verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. The very least that you and I can do for God in in return for all the mercies that He has done is to offer our bodies, offer our entire lives to Him in service. I think we can apply the same principle to our corporate worship. Yes, we need to apply this to ourselves individually. Where is it that I'm not in line with the Scriptures? But how about as a church? How about with our corporate worship? Is there some way that we are out of line with Scripture? Is there some way that we've kind of fallen into um, the lie of, uh, of our current society that says we need to be relevant and we need to be innovative in our worship services. We need to be more, more um, exciting. There's some way that we've fallen out of line with what the Scriptures call for. Well, how about as a church, are we willing to evaluate our current worship practices and gladly submit ourselves to what the Bible says? Now, we don't have a building called a temple. This is not, there's nothing uh, sacred about this building in itself. This building is simply a place where we meet. 
what's sacred about this place is the people that are here. The people that are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's where God dwells now. He doesn't dwell in this building. You know, when you're gone throughout the week, God's not here in a special way like He is today. God's special presence is here meeting with us because His people are here. Nothing special about this building. So the direct application is not that, you know, we need to make sure the church building is taken care of. Yes, we we need to to be wise with the resources that God's given us. But the direct app, that would be more of an indirect application. Okay, so not to say let this thing go into ruins. That's not what I'm saying. That's an indirect application of, of this. But a direct application is that we as a body of believers must commit ourselves to, to proper worship. God, how do you want to be worshipped? Not what does the building look, need to look like in our worship. How do you want to wor- us to worship you? Wh- what pleases you? Because it's not about what pleases me when it comes to worship. What pleases you? That's a direct application. And what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 5.10 is to find out what is pleasing to the Lord and then do it. Believers who are concerned with hearing from God and obeying God respond with glad submission. So let's do that now by asking God to help us. Let's pray. Father, we have seen Your will in Your Word that we must submit ourselves to You. And so we gladly bow our hearts before You and give our lives to You wholly and offer ourselves and obligate ourselves to obey You in every way. Lord, we know we can't do that perfectly. We know that we fail often. We know that we even forget commitments that we make. But You are a faithful God and that's what we count on. That while we have acted wickedly individually and as a church at times, we we know that You have been faithful to us and we ask that You would continue to remain faithful and to help us to pursue and to follow through on our commitment to obey You. So help us, we pray, as we apply this to our lives. May we not go from this place and simply forget Your Word, but, but uh, gladly submit to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.